Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Peter. This is the first uh, solo podcast that I'll be putting forward, and I'm going to keep it short. Um, I think the idea I had is just uh, five to ten minute kind of musings on issues that matter to me and should matter to you if you're someone who um, has looked in the general direction of a newspaper in the past couple of months or year. Um, and, um, you know, today I'm going to talk about Super Tuesday and how it went. So, you know, I think in the few days before South Carolina and even after South Carolina, to some degree, the polls all showed that Bernie had pretty commanding leads in some key Super Tuesday states, most importantly, Texas and California. Um, you know, it's now obviously March 4th. Um, the uh, Super Tuesday results are in, and it looks like, you know, the only really big prize Bernie got, and it is a big prize, is the California um, race, which the polls uh, did seem to be uh, true and accurate, and he did win. Now, since the South Carolina primary, a few things happened. Uh, two of the moderate, so-called moderate candidates, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, uh, gave up their attempts to uh, secure the Democratic nomination, and they both, um, on you know, basically the eve of Super Tuesday, endorsed um, Joe Biden. Which uh, you know, sure they can do that, um, but it's strange that they would abandon their campaigns on the eve of Super Tuesday. I mean, they've both spent a year or more campaigning these places, employing huge organizations, you know, coming up, sending, circulating communications to their supporters and their senior leaders, showing their path to, you know, the 1991 delegate count. And then all of a sudden, they both drop within a few hours of each other. And the next day, they're up on a stage endorsing uh, Joe Biden along with Beto O'Rourke, who I guess came out of his like, you know, garage band situation. I don't know what he did. But it all felt a little bit, you know, awful and strange. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other side, I think the person most ideologically, you know, similar to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who has, you know, obviously, uh, I think one delegate to her name, if that, uh, maybe five, but a very, very small number, um, you know, insisted on staying in the race and obviously took some votes away from Bernie, probably took some votes away from others as well, but stayed in the race through Super Tuesday and, and ensured that, uh, you know, Bernie came in uh, second in some critical states, including Massachusetts and it looks like Maine and a few other, possibly her, her involvement in Texas had an impact on him. Um, be that as it may, it looks to many people who support Bernie Sanders, including me, um, that, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a long nomination process culminating in, uh, you know, the, uh, the Democratic National uh, Convention on uh, July 13th to July 16th in Milwaukee. And it's very likely, unless something strange happens, that neither Biden nor Sanders will have the requisite number of delegates to clinch the nomination after the first vote. So that is that. What's more troubling is kind of the subtext of what happened. Let's take a look at Bernie Sanders, and I'm going to try to be as objective as possible here. Bernie Sanders objectively has the best platform, the best ideas. Um, I think his uh, very, you know, his nominal tax proposal on the value of very large stock transactions is genius. It's a really nominal, I think 0.01% or something very, very low on uh, on stock transactions that exceed a certain threshold. Um, you know, that alone would fund, um, you know, his plan or proposal for universal childcare. 
you know, that's great. Um, and I think, you know, when you hear Bernie Sanders speak, this is a person who's articulating the types of views and positions most of us for many years, both the kind of politically savvy and the politically, you know, clueless, assume the Democratic Party stands for, um, you know, things like universal health care, things like universal child care, things like taxes on the wealthy and big corporations, affordable college. Um, you know, these ideas, and this shows you how far this country has moved to the right. I mean, these ideas are, uh, you know, denigrated by Joe Biden as, you know, revolutionary. You know, Americans don't want a revolution. They want things to go back to the way they were, the, the way they were under presumably Obama is what he's saying. And I'll address that in a moment. But you look at a guy like Sanders, um, especially compared to uh, some of his, you know, I guess Biden, who really is the 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 the, the presumptive front runner now. Bernie Sanders is lucid. He is honest. I mean, impossibly so for any politician, and frankly, honest to a fault. And he's not so clueless and ignorant that he thinks America has never done anything wrong or never failed. I mean, that's what you get from a lot of these folks on the right and the left. You know, America is the greatest place ever. It's amazing. There's no issues. You know, look, this isn't about America's history. It's about America's future. Just kind of like nonsensical platitudes. And when you look at this candidate, he is truly as close to someone like FDR as uh, we've ever had since FDR. But we have the DNC insisting on basically ignoring that similarity and running effectively a very similar game plan to the one they ran in 2016 and hoping for the best. That is nominating a moderate candidate with a very checkered history and an awful voting record. I mean, Biden voted for Iraq, NAFTA. I mean, when he was in the Judiciary Committee, he attacked Anita Hill and supported Clarence Thomas. This is a person who has undermined this, tried to undermine the Civil Rights Act. I can go on and on. And, um, you know, they say the, the definition of insanity is when someone does the same thing over and over and over again and expects a different outcome. And, and here we are, the DNC doing all it can to steer Joe Biden into the nomination. Um, and the media, of course, being very complicit. And it's funny because I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's just me or what or who. I hope others do this, but it seems like it's a minority of Americans who think, man, let me assess this candidate on the merit of, of their positions. But also, I'm kind of curious, who are the people most in the institutions most, you know, fervent or aggressive in their attacks of Bernie Sanders? And you see, it is the DNC, it is the media, it is big corporations, it is Silicon Valley, it is the extremely wealthy. Effectively, it is the elite of society. The elite of society, as Bernie Sanders said with respect to the establishment, he is an existential threat to them. Because what Bernie Sanders stands for is the possibility that it won't be business as usual in America anymore. America will not settle for a lackluster, easily defeatable, already found unconstitutional in part, soon probably to be found unconstitutional in whole, healthcare plan. Um, America should not spend as much as it does on military spending and military contracts. We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be getting involved in foreign excursions um, that are not necessary and certainly not warranted as a matter of, of moral judgment. Um, you know, on the bright side, Biden running and losing might be enough for the DNC to be ultimately reborn as something less fat, corrupt, and complacent. Um, but look, in the off chance that Joe Biden wins, 
it's going to be a temporary validation of the DNC's fantasy that generic, formless, corporate liberalism is the cure for everything bad in America. And I've got a spoiler for you, that is not true. Um, the only thing a Joe Biden presidency does is it gives America a reprieve, a short reprieve from the insanity of Trumpism and the feeling that things are getting better when they are actually not. Um, I fully expect Mitt Romney in 2024 to face off against a uh, Trump-like demagogue, and we will probably repeat the 2016 election in some respect in, in 2024. Unless by that time the uh, DNC or some other party has gotten its act together. But it's looking more and more like, you know, my entire adult life and many other millennials, um, you know, I'm at the tail end of that group, but our lives are going to be this weird, as long as we're in America and Americans, um, this weird dance between the extreme far right ideology and sort of a tepid, moderate, centrist, woke, kumbaya ish, Obama ist you know, approach, which, um, you know, we saw in the Obama administration's uh, tenure. And, um, you know, just understanding that there's not going to be any real lasting reforms um, in a Biden presidency, just as there weren't in Obama's eight years in office. I mean, his greatest legacy, Obamacare, as I said, has already been found unconstitutional in part and likely will be held unconstitutional in full just in time um, for Trump's in second term inauguration because the Supreme Court is taking an ACA case, but they won't be able to issue a ruling on it until, surprise, surprise, 2021. So, you know, I'm, I'm particularly hung up about Obama because like many other millennials, I mean, when Obama, you know, hit the national scene, this was a dude who was, you know, saying the right stuff. He was saying it's not going to be business as usual in D.C. We're going to see real institutional change. We're going to tackle some of the the really, really weird issues that seem uniquely American. Um, but when you actually take a look, an objective look at Obama's presidency, and you look at all that he could have done versus what he didn't do, and the way he did what he did, it's easy to see that, you know, in a lot of ways, Obama was just kind of a, a feel-good president and not a lot more. This, you know, person represented, really was the apotheosis of the DNC and, you know, liberal fantasy. And now, you know, the fantasy of reliving the Obama years, the aching, aching liberal nostalgia for that Obama feeling, um, it's led to a majority of the Democratic Party electorate to basically anoint a guy who is, uh, you know, one malted shake away from being dragged around a general election campaign like the dead body in uh, Weekend at Bernie's. And that's, that's really the state of affairs. You know, this, this uh, you know, Joe Biden, perfectly, you know, nice guy in some ways, but not lucid, clearly, visibly senile. Um, and, uh, you know, someone who can't even finish sentences because he forgets his own thoughts. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, I would say it's somewhat, um, you know, reason to despair. I talked to... Uh, you know, folks on the other side, I talk to Republicans, I talk to Trump people, I talk to anarchists, and, you know, I talk to whomever is willing to talk to me and capable of articulating a rational, you know, at least <laughs> pretending it's a rational viewpoint. And I'll tell you, this belief, this DNC belief that, you know, mo other moderates and independent voters are just looking for someone a little bit better, you know, not too extreme as the candidate of choice, and they will be the decisive voters in the 2020 election and give Biden the presidency. 
I mean, that's just silly. Go talk to anyone who voted for Trump or considers voting for Trump. And, you know, it's almost uniform. Everyone thinks Biden's a corrupt, you know, senile fool. And, um, you know, the Hunter Biden nonsense, of course, we all know that was a distraction, a stupid, silly distraction of no real merit in the impeachment proceedings. But you're going to see that resurface with a much more substantial resonance in the general election because, you know, a lot of people think that Hunter Biden's connection in the Ukraine is way worse than Trump openly employing his own kids and family in the White House and other positions of prominence and power. That's the distinction they make, right? It's not, you know, Trump is putting his, uh, you know, enriching his kids at the country's expense. It's Trump is employing these folks right in the White House, in the U.S. government. Meanwhile, Biden and his name and his power allowed his son to be on the board of a foreign company and frankly, a shady one at that, shady political connections. So we're going to see that come up too. So yeah, it's a, it's a depressing day. You know, it sucks to see the possibility of real, exciting, meaningful change evaporate due to, um, you know, a few things, but I'll point out a couple as I wrap up here, you know, really sort of deranged and relentless media onslaught against Bernie Sanders you know, pumping up everyone else, characterizing, you know, the New Hampshire primary, for example, which Bernie won as, you know, the real story of the strong finishes of Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, you know, doing the same in Nevada. You know, sh- the real story is Elizabeth Warren's surge after her Nevada debate um, and then turning, you know, Joe Biden into a unstoppable, you know, electoral powerhouse after he won South Carolina. Um, and doing so for basically 72 straight hours. Um, you know, the media being highly complicit in this whole, whole thing and certainly being complicit in Donald Trump's, you know, nomination and election is a really big problem. Uh, and, you know, I'd urge you all to consider looking up, um, you know, videos about manufacturing consent, which is based on a book that Noam Chomsky and a colleague wrote. Uh, I believe 1991, around that time, um, about how the media machinery manufactures our consent in very, uh, uh, I would say, malevolent ways. Um, but yeah, that, that possibility of real exciting, meaningful change going away, evaporating due to the media involvement on the one end and um, on the other end, Obama's meddling behind the scenes, which we're learning more and more about every day. Um, you know, having a call with you know, Pete Buttigieg right after the South Carolina primary, um, you know, having a call with uh, him and Biden right after that, making other calls to prominent party officials seeking Biden endorsements, all purporting, all while Obama purported to be in the sidelines. So, you know, where does that leave us, right? We, we have the one kind of objectively good candidate, um, you know, on the ropes. We have uh, objectively deeply flawed candidate, you know, moving uh, to prominence. And, you know, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. There's, you know, another uh, set of primaries in the 10th and then one, another set on the 16th. But obviously the momentum is pretty much all in Joe Biden uh, right now. And I mean, this is a guy who I think a couple of years ago or a couple of years ago talked about his confrontation with a street tough called Corn Pop. Um, you know, cool story. Uh, you know, you get an Esther Williams, uh, 1940s film actress reference there. And, um, you know, I could, I could talk about Biden all day. I think he's a, again, a nice person who's had a very both, uh, difficult, but also very, um, you know, 
uh, fortunate life in, in some ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I th- can't help but think back to the words of, um, you know, French uh, philosopher, uh, you know, uh, from a very long time ago, I think actually before democracy became the prevalent form of governance in the West, um, I believe his name is Joseph de Mestre. And, um, you know, you've heard it before. The people get the government they deserve. And I guess America and Americans still deserve nothing more than a choice between two sexist, racist, you know, uh, senile white guys um, who, frankly, and from an ideological perspective, it's hard to pin down Donald Trump's ideology because I, I, I frank, I wouldn't even be surprised if the guy was was stumping on Medicare for all come, you know, this October or September. But, you know, these two people who ideologically, there there probably isn't a ton of distance between them. Um, certainly, if you take Joe Biden's most, you know, far right articulated views in his history, um, I think a lot of them are right in line with Trump's. Um, and that's the choice. That's the choice that it looks like we're going to get. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, a lot of people say he didn't do enough in, in 2016 to support Hillary Clinton. I'm, I mean, it's a matter of fact that the man did more rallies than Hillary Clinton did, literally. I mean, I think he did 47 or something. That's more rallies to get Hillary elected than Hillary herself did. Um, you know, again, Hillary Clinton is a person who did not set foot in the state of Wisconsin uh, during the run-up to the election and then was surprised that uh, the state voted against her. So it's a, it's a depressing moment. Um, you know, I think my advice to the folks listening to this who feel like their voices aren't being heard and the party is not listening is to keep on fighting um, because, you know, it's uh, exactly what the DNC and the establishment want when we stop fighting, when we stop having conversations, when we stop demanding real change, when we accept that we are in um, a status quo that amounts to basically incrementally better conditions over large periods of time with occasional sharp regressions to worse conditions, which is what happened, right? We had eight years of Obama. Is, you know, is the criminal uh, justice or criminal legal system more fair? No, absolutely not. Do we treat immigrants more fairly? No. Is healthcare better for most Americans? No. Are wages um, increasing at a rate that even resembles an equitable distribution across different wealth strata? No, not at all. Um, is the economy better? Mm. I mean, Obama uh, participated and, and promoted a lot of policies that you know gave bailouts to giant corporations that seemed to drive uh, a certain economy. You know, the economy of the wealthy, but. For the rest of us who are not wealthy, who are not in the top 1% or 0.01% or whatever, things are pretty much the same. We're, we're flatlining as a country, despite the fact that, again, it is a very different experience for the wealthy. So the last thing I want to say really is that these issues and all the sort of party conflict and the political nonsense that we deal with in our news, in our lives, with our families, with our friends, on CNN, on Fox News, on MSNBC, they are all an immense distraction from the truth that undergirds everything, all of our experiences in this society. And that simple truth 
is there is a certain class of people, the wealthy, the powerful, the quote-unquote elites. It's not a term I like to use, but it's an applicable term. There are the elites who control much of our lives and much of our well-being and um, you know they live lives virtually free of risk because they can rely on you know other elites coming to their aid and elitism folks it transcends political affiliation it transcends political affiliation it is something almost like dna right it's almost that that level um of sort of embeddedness that's probably not a word but it is that embedded into these individuals and um most of us the overwhelming majority of us are not we don't have that elite dna we don't and as a result we live paycheck from paycheck we live in debt we live in fear of a health crisis that keeps us out of work Um, We live in fear of a health crisis that bankrupts us. We live in fear of immense college, university, grad school loans that might take half a lifetime to pay off. Um, And we live in fear of everything but the elites, right? We fear war. We fear terrorism. We fear coronavirus. We fear this. But what we should be fearing, what we should be directing our rage against whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, anarchist, communist, whatever, what we should be directing our rage against is this class of elites that has outsized power over the lives of all of the rest of us. That's what should be the, 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 the target of our anger and our rage and our demand for change. Bernie Sanders has been the spokesman for that movement and where is he today? Well, he is no longer the front runner. He lost Texas, he won California. I think he won at the end of it four out of 14 Super Tuesday states. And I, I want everyone, all two of you, listening to this to ask yourselves why. Like, why did that happen? Why, why did that happen? Um, because in a, in, a, in a world where the elites aren't controlling the media, aren't in bed with, you know, the Obama and the Hillary Clinton people, you get to vote for a candidate on the issues and on their platform. And no one can convince me that Bernie Sanders objectively has a worse platform for most Americans than Joe Biden. But if you can, if you do have those thoughts um, and they're principled and rational, um, you know, please contact me. I'll include my contact details in this podcast. And, um, you know, I hope this is the beginning of something more regular um, and something that people are interested in uh, because I do have a diverse background and, you know, approach the world. And I'm not part of the DNC. I'm not part of the GOP. I'm not part of any political party. I am just focused on the best path to maximize the best life for all Americans, whether you're black, Latino, gay, LGBTQ, white, whatever, um, Native American, it doesn't matter to me, Republican, Democrat, independent, voter, non-voter, politically engaged, not. There is a path forward. America used to do 
big things. We would set big goals and we would achieve them. Um, and we will need to think big and fight hard to achieve any notable progress in the future. So regardless of how depressed you are, I am, others are about what happened today, I want everyone to you know, keep staying engaged, keep fighting. It's going to happen. Uh, hopefully in our, in our lifetimes, hopefully we can be beneficiaries of it. Um, but it's going to be rough going for the next few months um, and possibly the next few years. But keep the faith and I hope to be back next time. Farewell and be well.